0: But if you want a long term relationship, you got to have the strength to admit that you're wrong and you got to have the strength to be open to the possibility I don't have all the information uh, and open to the possibility that my reaction probably was not the best for what we wanted to accomplish
1: as a family.
2: Welcome to the What I Meant to Say podcast. I'm Wendy Jones and I'm here today with Jerry Dugan, author and podcast host of Beyond the Rut. And Jerry, I was I enjoyed being on your the conversation we had on your podcast and I'm so happy to have you on What I Meant to Say today. So, thanks for joining me.
0: Awesome, Wendy. Thanks for having me on here.
2: Yeah. Um I am fascinated by just the title. I mean, I think we connected through either PodMash or, or LinkedIn. I can't remember which, but the concept of beyond the rut. And it stuck with me the first time I heard it because it's something that I think so many people can identify with. Definitely something I could identify with. For me, you know, I, you know, life gets crazy. I have four kids. I know you, you're married kids. You have a story that comes, you know, I love what you have done by taking your experience and translating that into something that can help other people, so tell me a little bit about your background and um you know how we how you got into the podcasting world and let's go Yeah, from that. um
0: let's see at a young age so um gosh in nineteen seventy two my parents met and <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: uh,
0: <laughs> but something that um my parents were good about when i was younger especially my mom was you know you're gonna get good grades you're gonna go become a doctor and an officer in the army like she was from thailand so her version of success in the u.s was their officers in the army and their doctors and so that was just her limited view of the world and and she wanted to instill that in me at a young age um But then, you know, my parents divorced when I was 11. Um, My brother was like nine at the time. and, And a lot of that shattered. And it made me question a lot of things around, you know, what's the point of going after success if it costs family in the process? And then I started looking at like my extended family and they had a if there was a way to be the stereotypical Irish family, like, Oh, woe is me. Life sucks. There's no point in trying things. My family had that nailed down perfectly. Um, various uncles going through divorce, my cousins all hitting the, you know, getting the brunt of that. And, uh, you know, be me being the, the, uh, biracial kid in a, you know, white family, uh, I was the outsider. So a lot of, uh, getting picked on name calling uh, and, and a lot of uh, you know, like, hey, why do you read? A book is never going to get you a job. You know, uh, the aspirations among my cousins was really, let's get emancipated at sixteen and and live off of SSI for our lot the rest of our lives. And I just thought this can't be all there is to life. You know that, and, and their parents were reinforcing it. And I thought this this doesn't feel worth living. And suicide for me is not an option. I just seen my dad attempt that in on himself. Um, He failed, fortunately. Um, And and so I just thought, you know, at 11 years old, you know, there's got to be more to life. And by 14 years old, I probably wrote my first actual goal in life. And that was, I wanted to change people's perception of our name, you know, in our local town where my grandparents were living and my uncles and aunts and cousins were living. um, The moment we walked through a door of a store, security would follow us. Uh, and that's the other thing. We we shopped in places where every store had a security guard. <laughs> and it was just like, um, I just noticed that. It's like, wow, you know, when our name is used, people see Troublemaker. They see this person's not going to try. And I thought there's there's got to be more to that. There's got to be more than just that. And And I started to realize from like my friends around me at school that. Mm-hmm. They loved going out with their family. They loved going on vacation with their families. They um, they saw a future for themselves. It wasn't anything grand, but they saw themselves living on their own and, um, you know, just having the best life they can have. And I thought, I, I want something like that. You know, I started to realize I had friends whose parents had been married for decades, and I wanted more of that. Um, their grandparents, you know, many more years beyond just a couple of decades. And I just thought, I want different. And so I, I wrote my, my goal out at 14 years old on Christmas cards, and I gave them out to the extended family. And it was just like, I want to change our family name so that when people hear it, they think this is somebody who can help me. This is somebody who can support me. I want a, a, a marriage that's going to last till the day I die. And not because somebody feels obligated to, but because I am bringing what I need to bring to the relationship. I've chosen somebody who does the same thing that my kids, you know, feel they can trust me and come to me for, you know, guidance and growth. And I wrote this at like 14 years old and, and I wish I wrote one for myself, but I mean, it was so powerful for me because I wrote it something like 15 to 20 times and handed them out that it, it gave me that driving force. I needed to, to be the first to graduate from college. Uh, I went immediately into the army because, you know, it turns out at a 2.1 GPA, you're not going to med school
1: hmm
0: Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's fun fact. Uh, so uh, I figured maybe I could join the Army, be a medic, get to travel, get a paycheck, get some training and experience, and then maybe I can go and try medical school again after that. Uh, so that was my younger life from you know, 11 years old to about 27.
2: What, what do you think at that point, um, how did you turn your mindset from being – you know, what you were hearing from your family, that more victim fixed mindset, right? Into this growth goal oriented mindset. Do you think that was inborn or was there, do you remember keying in on anything? Because that's really young to to have that kind of vision. It's really awesome.
0: Um, I think a blend of both. Uh, When somebody introduced me to something called the 40 developmental assets about a decade ago, uh, came out of, where did it come out of? The search institute out of, I think, michigan or something Uh, but the search institute 40 developmental assets it covers if youth have these 40 assets as a part of their life growing up uh, the likelihood of success goes up the fewer assets they have their likelihood of um, negative coping mechanisms failed relationships failed work life uh, is is higher uh, and a risk of going to prison is higher and uh, what drove this research by the search institute was you know we see families where generation after generation, they're incarcerated. And then we see other families where generation after generation, they seem to have all the things that we would say is successful, family, marriage, income, career, all those things. So what did one group have that the other didn't? What they found were 20 internal assets and 20 external assets. And um, when I was looking at, because the person doing this workshop said, okay, when you were growing up, did you have um, you know, both parents together your whole life uh when you were growing up did uh, you have a meal every like three times a day uh did you have everything you needed financially covered uh and, and there's did you volunteer did you go to church uh these kinds of things and and as far as external assets out of twenty, I think I had four or five, and I oh, was wow. like. Oh boy. Uh, (laughs) But on the internal asset side, uh, things like, do you strive to do well in school? Uh, do you do extracurricular activities? Uh, things like that. I had out of the 20, I think I had like 15 or 16 and the, uh, the sweet spot was around 20 or more. You had a better chance of doing well in life. Um, less than 10, you were likely to go down this other darker path in life. Uh, and I was like, wow. So I, I would say all that to say, I think more internally uh, that was just who I am, and um, and I think it was supported by mom, my mom, in my earlier years, uh, and, and my dad. He is a very supportive guy, still is to this day.
2: That's awesome, and it, it's, it goes to show that like families always are going through things. There's no perfect family, but it's those things like, if from my perspective, always that if we can grab onto it and examine it a little bit and see how we can use it to grow you know, that's that case for generational learning that I'm always after. And I hear, I hear that coming through in your story. So I can, I can see, you know, how our our like minds attracted, but yeah. So, um, so you said that was until you were about 27, that first stage um, of coming through, you know, setting those goals and, and, and executing. Um, So then what happened at at 20, why, why is 27 a, a turning point?
0: Uh 27 is when I left the army. So uh, I joined the army right out of college, met my wife there. She was in the same unit as me. Uh so I'd gone to Kosovo. I was I was one of those guys that did what they say not to. They say never volunteer for anything. My first week on the job in Germany, my boss is asking me, Hey, I'm putting together this team of folks to kind of spearhead uh the first division into Kosovo. Um and I think you'd have the skill sets to really thrive there. We'll make sure you're ready to go. I was like, sure, I'll do this. Uh, you know, I said it army style, of course. Like, yes, Sergeant, I'll, I'll be a part of this team. I did not know I was the first person to volunteer after three months of her trying to pull volunteers together. So I didn't make friends for a little while. <laughs> uh, so off I go to Kosovo. Seven months later, I'm back in Germany. And my wife-to-be is one of the new soldiers in the unit. And she came on board at a time where um, the, like, my group of folks had gone to Kosovo our replacements had also gone to Kosovo. So she was there during a vacuum of like good, solid leadership and uh, the leader she was assigned. I won't say his name in case he's turned his you know style around, but uh, he, he wasn't the best leader. And then we had this new platoon leader come in and a new platoon sergeant. And the platoon leader though was from uh, a ranger unit. Like he was like the guys you see on Black Hawk down. And so yeah. for, for him, he had gotten hurt. He healed became an officer and the first unit they put him in is like what you would see in the movie mash. It was like night and day for this guy. It was just like, I can't stand this, but I'll at least hold my leaders to some accountability here. And uh, he decided he's going to pair up this first group of Kosovo vets with the new soldiers. There was a batch of them. And I got paired up with this soldier named Morales. And uh, my job was to tell her and teach her everything I learned while deployed in Kosovo. And I thought she was cute. And the problem was I ran out of content within four days. I was like, I taught her everything I learned in four days. Because one of these days we did like a night training mission and Mm -hmm. I had nothing but like four hours to tell her everything I knew. And I was just keeping the conversation going. Well, after those four days, I'm like, uh, I need something. So I'm looking around. I have like a field manual in my room. Like, all right, we're going to teach her how to set up. A field antenna. Great. And so that the next day I'm like making this two hour lesson on how to set up a field antenna. And then like the next day, I'm like, we're gonna learn how to dig a foxhole. All right, that's what we're learning. Never built a foxhole while I was in Kosovo. This is all stuff I'm just pulling out of the air to keep this going. Three months later, I finally ask her out. She asks, What took so long? I was like, What do you mean? She's like, I've been dropping hints for three months. I'm like, Really? Like what? She's like, do You do you really think? Excuse me do you really think I wanted to learn about how to set up a, a field antenna? Or, <laughs> I was like, I, you ate it all up. She's like, I was keeping the conversation going. I was like, I was looking up field manuals to keep conversation, like to have an excuse to keep talking to you uh, in the context of work, because that's when I was allowed to talk to you. So anyway, um, yeah, we got married. We have two kids. Uh, she gets out of the army cause it's nine 11. Um, and then before I get out of the army, I get deployed to Iraq. And so when I come out of there alive, I realize I don't think I'll survive another tour anywhere. Because I'm I'm that guy that says, "Oh, there was an explosion. Let's go help." And I was like, "You, you don't live 20 years in a career if you keep doing that." Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't want to miss out my kids growing up. Like my army career would have exploded in a good way. You know, I would have mm-hmm. climbed the ranks. I would have gotten all the experience I would need, uh, probably to get a book deal. I don't know. I wasn't special forces, so I, no book deal. But um, the expense was I was going to miss out on having a deep relationship with my wife and getting to know who my kids were. And that wasn't worth, yeah. it, wasn't, it just wasn't worth it. So 27th, when I got out of the army, okay, I became a civilian, um, first year as a civilian, it's Christmas 2005, I believe. And it's the day after Christmas actually. And I realized that the the credit card we had just spent all year to pay off was now fully maxed out again. Mm. Just this holiday we just celebrated. Uh-huh. And, oh gosh, it's gonna take me all year to pay that credit card off again without really hurting our lifestyle.
1: Uh-huh.
0: We're gonna do the same thing because we don't set any money aside. And and then I'm gonna repeat it. And then the next year after that, it's gonna be the same thing. And and what kind of pay increases would I need to have so that this wouldn't be a problem for us anymore? And I realized. I'm in the rat race that if nothing changes, the rest of my life is going to be around this credit card, max it out, spend all year to pay it off, max it out, spend all year to pay it off. Um, And we're going to miss out on vacations. I'm going to miss out on time with my kids. Uh, My wife and I are going to be frustrated about money. This isn't the way to go. And, um, and we talked and we just realized, okay, we got to really focus on family first and, and what's worth it. What's not worth it. Uh, Three months later, I lose my job. I become a real estate agent. And I'm like, yeah, I got my first sales. Uh, This is now 2006. Bubble (laughs) bursts. Yeah, Five years, we live uh, in pretty much abject poverty. Uh, But during that time, though, I I really just recentered like what matters most to us. Um, And that's where like, and beyond the rut these five F's really started to form, you know, our faith is first and foremost in our family. And, and that was for my wife, like her relationship with God was first and foremost for me, my relationship with God, but then our next, um, important relationship was each other that Mm -hmm. we were going to grow closer together, respect each other, uh, treat each other, um, as the most important person on the planet. And which hurt our kids for about a second (laughs) when they're like, wait, we're not number one. We're like, no, you're like number three and three. You're both tied for third. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so our kids, they're in their twenties. Now they still fight over who's really three and who's four. We're like, no, no, <laughs> um, we all know. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, and so we just started to build our lives around that. You know, we didn't have a lot of money. We often had to ask for help financially, um, you know, real estate, did afford me the time to be closer to my kids while they were in elementary school. I have to volunteer uh, at their school on a regular basis. And, and these moments created core memories for them that, uh, I mean, they're just core memories for me as well that, you know, I, yeah. Can
2: I, can I interrupt on, on something there But yeah. uh, that's really interesting because I think in a lot of, a lot of ways, people think, that you have to have this security and, you know, financial security to be able to do those things, right. To yeah. be able to have time to volunteer in your child's classroom or so. How did that feel for you? Or how were you able to create that safety in yourself to be able to take that time to do that without having that urgency of like, I need to be out clamoring. Yeah. To, do you know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And a lot of that went back to knowing who I wanted to be, um, yeah, I guess one of the darker things about being in the army is you start thinking about the end in mind, the end of your life in mind. So, uh, Mm -hmm. what do I want to be known for? What do I want to have had an impact on? And, you know, thinking about that and, and I had, I had one uncle and this story really stands out in my mind, uh, quite well. Um, my uncle Eugene was married to my aunt Mary. So aunt Mary is the one in, you know, related by blood. She had passed away from cancer uh, uncle Eugene just died a very lonely life. Um, and I remember having just come out of college right before I left for the army, uh, helping my grandfather and my dad and a few other folks clean out uncle Eugene's home. Um, and that's when I learned he had kids from a free, previous marriage because there was this lady standing outside the house just crying and, um, uh, not like bawling her eyes out, but there was a tear coming down her face. She looked like sad. And and just kind of pondering. And my grandfather asked her if he could help her. She said, no, I just, I needed closure. And he realized, oh, you're one of his children. And she said, yes. And he said, well, he didn't have a will. We're just clearing everything out. You're welcome to come in and, and claim whatever, you know, you feel you want. She said, I don't want anything from him. I just needed to see that he was really gone mm-hmm. and say my goodbyes. And and I thought, wow, you know, she didn't go to his funeral. Uh, she really had no relationship with him. And, you know, from what I understood, not many people went to his funeral. I was in college. Like, my family didn't even tell me he passed away until two weeks after the funeral. I was like, you know, of all the nephews, I was probably his favorite. <laughs> Maybe he could have invited me. Uh, yeah. Because he, he really couldn't stand a lot of the people in our family. But with me, he could always have a conversation. And, and so I thought, man, that's, that's a bummer y'all didn't include. I didn't hold it against my family. It's just yeah, how my dad's family is. Um, but it stuck with me in terms of this guy had a whole different world that I never knew about. Mm. He was never connected with his kids. And to see the impact it had on his youngest child, that it, it left a hole in her heart. And I thought, I don't know if I'll ever be a dad, but if I am, I cannot let my child have that kind of hole in her heart. And, um, and sure enough, while I was deployed, my daughter was born. Uh, my son was already there. He was like a year old by then. Uh, and it, that was one of the big things that also changed me was I need to be there for her. I need to be there for my son. And um, so even though we were going through poverty and, and um, I just knew that my kids, their eyes would light up knowing that dad was coming to volunteer in their school all day. and, what I think sealed it for me was that first time I was volunteering my son's school. Uh, one of his classmates came up to me and she hugged me and said, thank you for being here. It's so nice to see the dads here. I wish my dad would come in and do this with us. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like I'm not doing this for validation from her, but it tells me that me being here with my son is like the thing I need to do. Um, and then when my daughter got to kindergarten, she was like, dad, you gotta come volunteer for me. I'm like, great, yeah, I'm coming in on this day. She goes, No, 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 that's that's for Jacob. I get a day. And, and so, like, they went to the same school. Like, I really could have just gone in once for both of them, and the school would accommodate this. This program's called Watchdog. So if you have watchdogs in your area, I dads, I recommend you you go and be a part of it. And so Every semester, one day for my son, one day for my daughter, even though they're in the same school and <laughs> uh, they were both going to see me anyway. So twice a semester really is what they would see. And then the second semester of the year, same thing. Uh, one day for my son, one day for my daughter. And then they did one to going up to separate schools for a little bit. And, and so we still did the same thing, but they still remember me doing that. They remember me playing with their kids. They remember me at PE. They remember me cutting open ketchup packets for everybody Uh, during lunchtime and um, you know my daughter still remembers parading me around the school like this is my dad he's here and I thought this is so cool and you know it wasn't just core memories for them like I remember that and uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything and
2: and doing that at an age when they're when they're younger and it really sinks in and there's so much appreciation you don't realize when you're doing those things but I'm sure you can attest to this being that they're in their 20s now like you're building for, it's capital for later, right? And you don't all of a sudden end up with a great relationship with your teenager or your 20 something. It's that time that when they were little that you invest. And if there's anything, I always, you know, you're so tired in those days when they're young and it's it's so exhausting. But looking back, you realize, man, that's really when you start to build that. So later when things get difficult, and the problems are more worldly and bigger and you have that capital.
0: Yeah. A- yeah. Yeah. Cause when they're teenagers, teenager years came along, that was a whole different world for us. Like all of a sudden they went from, we adore everything you do, you do for us, dad and mom. And, uh, to, they didn't talk a whole lot and they didn't want to share their problems with us at first. And, and we realized like, we couldn't just like bring the hammer down or force them to talk to us. We just had to be there and they would open up. And I think we, we set such a a safe environment for them to open up that like, I remember my daughter's friends coming over just to open up to my wife. And when I noticed that's what they're doing, I'm like, all right, I got to (laughs) go. I got to say, y'all are talking girl talk. And uh, I definitely don't want to be around for this conversation.
2: (laughs) yeah Uh, What do you think are some, what do you think some of those things that, that, you can do to make teenagers, um, you know, to create that space for them where they, they know they can trust you and talk about some of the more difficult things. Cause I think it's really important in the world right now.
0: Yeah. And I was fortunate that, uh, eventually I wound up having a job that allowed me to get this information straight from teenagers. Um, now that sounds weird without the context. So, uh, (laughs) after my real estate career, uh, five years, I wound up getting a job as a community educator for a battered women's shelter. Uh, And it it was a a dual agency. So it was a battered women's shelter and a sexual assault uh, crisis center. Uh, The team I was on, it was like four of us. And two of us, we had the job of going into schools, going into churches, community groups, and talking about uh, dating violence awareness, uh, sexual violence awareness. We did a lot of bully bystander type of conversations. So um, because Texas at the time had just passed a law, that addressed sexting among teenagers, because before that, all you had was child pornography laws and nobody wanted to prosecute because that meant a 15 or 16 year old child now is being tried felony charges for sexting.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, uh,
0: There was a really interesting misdemeanor type of for minors law that passed and that gained us a lot of access to schools to talk about um, when somebody's like, here's the impact on the person doing it. Um, here's the law, by the way. We're not lawyers, but this is the impact the law has. Uh, if you get caught doing this and, and you're convicted of this as a misdemeanor, who wants to go into a class and confess that they were doing this in, in front of their, their peers, yeah. with mom and dad with them in the class? And they're like, "Oh no!" I'm like, "That's the law," and so that's the law side. Uh, but let's talk about bully standard behavior, and we. Uh, sadly, there was, uh, I think, Amanda Todd out of Newfoundland, a uh, very tragic story of um, somebody who was bullied by classmates, uh, being tormented by a um, a guy who catfished her. She eventually committed suicide, and we shared her story in in these conversations, and you would see teenagers break down and cry because they were going through stuff like that, or they knew somebody had gone through that. And um, at some point, my coworker, she asked this most brilliant question, and she would keep repeating this question. And that was what can us adults do to allow you the space to speak up and hands down. And I took this with me and applied it, shared it with my wife. We both applied it. And that was, if we come to you for help or we come to you with a situation, don't just ground us and take our phone away. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, tell us more about that. And I'm like taking notes. now. I'm like, I'm a parent. I, I need to know. And they're like, yeah, it's just like, you know, I'm getting picked on at school and people are making fun of me on social media. My parents think the answer is that's it. We're taking your phone away. It's the phone that's doing this to you. And it's like, wow, because that didn't change anything. The, the child is still being made fun of on the internet and there's no support being provided from the parent to the child of how do they want to process this? And, and that was just one example. If I'm being cyberbullied, please don't just ground me and take my phone away. Help me process that. What do I do about this? How do I address the people who are laughing at me in the hallways? What do I do about the people who are still sharing pictures that are doctored up or not doctored up? Um, How do we fix this? How do do I know that I'm still loved by my parents even? And I was like, Oh, I I turned to my, my coworker. I was like, Adela, I need to go. The first time this happened, I was like, I need to go in the hallway. And I was just like, you know, like broken hearted. And I was like, man, I, I cannot, again, I cannot have this for my kids. It, it's uh, and I shared that with my wife and she's like, great. And so that was the biggest thing was no matter what they come home with, they got to know you love them and that you're there with them to help them navigate. It doesn't mean you're going to cover things for them, that you're going to not let them experience consequences. Uh, they still have to experience those consequences, but you're there to help them navigate. So they're not on their own. Um, because the alternative is they're going to get their advice from their friends or what friends they still have left or think they have. And, and yeah, they feel, yeah,
2: I, I, I can identify with so much of what you're saying, having, you know, raising teenagers right now. And that concept that, you know, it is a 24 seven game and this is their world that we can't yeah. change it. But we have to be able to, to know how to support it. And it's it's really difficult as parents. Because we don't, I don't think we even fully understand what they're up against. You know, wow. I've seen, I've seen through my kids eyes, you know, glimpses of it, but that safe space to come every time they've come to me with something difficult, I think of the kid that doesn't have safe space because what they come to you with is heavy and you can even see in, in situations where there's no support where it's life threatening because they can't get away from it. Yeah. And whereas in our generation, you know, this makes me feel old, but you could go home and there was a break.
0: Yeah. That door not, was like a force field.
2: <laughs> right. And I, that hits me more so many times that, you know, every, every video game, there's, there's access to, you know, every social media platform, every video game, nothing is done. You know, that, that concept of quiet and safety is, is yeah. just not there the way it used to be. Yeah. So well, you know, yeah. how do we connect with them? It's it's really interesting to hear you know you learning that from the field and not even from your own children. Um, yeah. Yeah. Really. We, we
0: take that home and apply it and see it work. I'm like, holy cow, this really yeah. works. Yeah. Uh, you know, learning from other people's mistakes in a sense, and right? Carrying that with other people, you know, if they will listen, I still I have friends that still think, yeah, you know, we just take this away from our child, and it's like, your child's like 17 and hasn't learned how to cope with. Anything right, and that's not going
2: away, and yeah. then that concept of like as human beings, we all want to be connected, right? I mean, we're all seeking connection, so when you that that phone is a point of connection in a lot of ways, so you taking it away does not solve the problem, yeah, and yeah, learning how to manage the feelings that come in with it, that's where we can really help, but yeah, that and that knee jerk reaction though to just you know cut it off. That's it's 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 one of fear, and you know what you're saying is coming so much more from that yeah. piece of love that it.
0: And the other thing I learned, and this was more from a colleague in the field. Um, uh, he worked for the Texas Association Against Sexual Assault, uh, Ted Rutherford. I'll give him credit. Him and and the whole gang, Emiliano, uh, man, he's got a long last name, Diaz de Leon, and uh, and other guys, Tim Love, he got a short name. Uh, <laughs> these guys shared with me uh that the other thing also is don't just go and solve the problem for them just be there with them and ask them questions about how they want to solve this and um and that was a hard thing f- at first for me to do it's like i want to go in there and, and protect my child who just got cyberbullied on a video game by what sounds like a grown man uh and i remember yelling at this grown man and the guy's like oh shoot i'm so and the guy cut off mid-sentence i'm like what happened and my son, he was like 12 or 13 at the time. He goes, I, I just reported the guy's profile for being abusive. I was like, What? He goes, Yeah, the, the guy is not worth it, Dad. I'm, I'm sorry you lost your cool, cool over that guy. I was like, how often does this happen? He goes, Every third or fourth game. I'm like, How many people do you wind up reporting? He goes, A lot. And I was like, like, He's like, Did you notice how quickly that guy was gone? I'm like, Yeah. He was like, Yeah, I got I, It's like muscle memory now. Click, 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 mm-hmm. and the person's gone and I booted from the game and everything and i thought wow And he goes yeah they're, they're just not worth it they yeah. it. for him to say like my words back to me he's like that person showed their insecurity by thinking they needed to take it out on kids and yeah i wasn't going to deal with it and no other kid should have to deal with it i was like well look like, at you yeah and I was like, my work is done. He's like,
2: yeah.
0: and I <laughs> right? left the room and bragged at my about my son. And that was well over a decade ago, about a decade ago. And wow. like, man, he, and he even quoted me back to me that when somebody acts like that, they're just showing where they are and it has nothing to do with the value of who I am. And I was like,
2: he listens. Yep.
0: Yeah. It's huge.
2: That's yeah. huge. And very good advice too. I should say, <laughs> but um yeah, I think, you know, the, uh, parenting is one of my absolute favorite topics, but um, I do want to, I'm excited. I want to come back to um, beyond the rut because I think there are a lot of people out there in, in so many walks of life that have experienced this feeling of being in a rut. Yeah. And from your perspective, um, can you explain to our audience, you know, how you break down what a rut is and then what are those principles that help you get beyond it?
0: Yeah. So a rut is just like it says in the dictionary. It's a pattern of behaviors that are not productive. And uh, when we started, there used to be a we, there used to be three of us on this show uh, eight years ago. And when we started Beyond the Rut, the premise was we wanted to help that person who seems to have all the boxes checked of what success should look like. Married, children, you got the house, the cars, the job, the paycheck, But you know, deep down inside, there's something missing. There's something that isn't quite satisfying. Everything seems to be there, but it's all surface level.
2: I hope you're enjoying this conversation on what I meant to say, produced by my company, Be Better Media. To see the world of why we are striving to share inspired edutainment, I invite you to please check out our website, bebettermedia.tv. Here you will find all kinds of great stuff from upcoming new productions to lifestyle products and services I personally use and endorse, to links to great books and other podcasts I love and recommend. Please check us out at BeBetterMedia.tv. That's BeBetterMedia.tv.
0: So what's going on? You know, What's that rut you're feeling that you're in? And uh, over time, we realized there's kind of really a three-phase process you go through. Our guests have all shared their three phases that they've gone through, and it's really recognizing the rut you're in, understanding where you really want to go and what success looks like for you and then taking action to get there consistently. So RUT, you know, it, it made mm-hmm. a perfect acrostic. So recognize, understand, take action. Um, and then to do that, to, to evaluate what rut am I in, uh, taking a look at your life in terms of the five F's, you know, I've mentioned earlier in our conversation that uh, I had a certain set of priorities, you know, faith, family, and then there are three other F's, um, fitness is in the middle. So financial, not financial, uh, physical, emotional, and mental fitness. Like all three of those are important. Uh, the fourth one being finances. A lot of us pursue finances first, and then we wind up wondering, you know, why is my family falling apart? Why is it I feel like I'm stressed out all the time, stress eating, those kinds of things. So finances, really, it's important. It buys things it it supplies some security however it shouldn't be the first thing of your list of priorities and then the fifth f uh, is future growth uh, so what am I doing to grow myself professionally as as an individual um, what kind of the things what kind of things am I doing on a daily basis to make sure I have a future that's worth having that I'm building this legacy I really want to build so those are the five fs so if you want to recognize the rut you're in just pause and something I would do. And I did this that day after Christmas when I woke up in bed and realized I was in the rat race. If I changed nothing, I really evaluated where am I today? And I looked at, uh, I kind of did it backwards at the time. Uh, what's my career tra- trajectory like? What's my income like? Um, okay. was well, is that really the most important thing? No, my family is okay. What about my fitness levels? I don't work out at all. Uh, and then when, is my roller coaster. If there's any one roller coaster in my life, it's my fitness, physical fitness. Uh, but then I knew my faith journey was pretty solid. I was plugged into a men's group. My wife and I were plugged into a couples group. Uh, we got involved in a marriage ministry to help strengthen our marriage. We wound up being volunteers for it, uh, later on down the road for a few years. And so we knew faith was good. We knew our relationship with each other was, we were intentionally working on it mm-hmm. and keeping it at the forefront. And, um uh, you know, And then connecting with our kids, the other piece of that family. And, and so, yeah, we, I just defined what do I want success to look like in those areas. Um, and then from there, understanding where I want it. So, yeah, defining the success is the understanding part. And then taking action was, okay, what do I do every day? So I get up early in the morning. I do some reading. I do some prayer. Um, if I put enough time in the morning, I also go out the door and I go for a walk or I go ruck marching. Um, and, and it just gets me jump-started for the day. And it, it gives me that future growth I want from the reading, the journaling, those kinds of things. Um, and then when I'm hit with a life-changing decision, I go through those priority lists. Um, in fact, recently I left my job and we had gone through those five Fs um, because the trigger for that was my wife saying, I want my husband back. And I was like, wow, where did that come from? And she shared with me, our kids thought that dad wants to leave the family. I wait, where is this coming from? And they described for me what they were seeing. And I realized I'm bringing work home. The stress of work is coming home with me. Mm -hmm. Okay. So my faith walk is okay. I still get up in the morning. I do this prayer. I I do my meditating. I visualize, but uh oh, F number two is in trouble because my family, my kids think I'm going to leave my wife and my wife knows I'm not, but she is sad that her peppy upbeat husband doesn't come home after work. Uh, in fact, the smile le- she would tell me, my smile would leave when it was time to go to work, and I thought, wow. And she's like, I'm sad because the Jerry I fell in love with and have been married to for 20 plus years, he leaves when it's time to go to work. He 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 like shuts down, dies. And I was like, wow, okay. Well, we need to bring your husband back, and uh, I, I put in a resignation to that job like right after that conversation. It was like it was decided right then and there. That job as well as it paid, as as great as the trajectory was, it was not worth my kids worrying if I was gonna leave their mother or not. And it was not worth uh, that strain that my wife saw it was having on me and and the concern she was having for me. And so um, it's really cool because a few months ago, a friend of ours came to visit us in Dallas and asked, how are things going Uh, now that Jerry's left his job? And my wife, without hesitation, turned to um to turn to this couple and said i've got my husband back and when she said that i was like mm. right check <laughs> and, uh, like I, I was toast i was i was teary-eyed and, and i couldn't talk anymore the rest of that dinner i was i was happy to hear it and um so yeah if you recognize if you feel like you're stuck that's the first yeah. clue. something feels like it's not going where i want it to what does my life look like in these five areas right now faith family fitness finances and future growth or future possibility. And in that, you might identify a bunch of different issues going on. So the trick is to ask yourself, which one of these things that if I took care of it, everything else would go away? Uh, and then consider the priority, though, because if you're thinking it's all about the money, I just need to make more money, but your struggle is in your family. It's like, what do I need to do to re-engage with my family? And it may be you give up the income you're trying to hold on to. And Yeah. Uh, Sometimes
2: growth can be counterintuitive, right? I mean, and and figuring out when to trust your gut and when, you know, and, you know, honestly, the other F that's coming in for me is not a good thing, but like our fear, right? Oh, yeah. Letting go or or doing something that's, you know, changing the unknown. What do you suggest for people when they're in a rut, but they feel that fear come in? You know, how how do you address that?
0: That, and it's a decision they've got to make on their own, but the realization that sometimes your growth has to come after you've pruned some things. And so releasing some things you're holding on to, like if I held onto that job because of the income and because of the job title, uh, it, I would probably not be in a good spot right now. I probably would have had a breakdown or two, maybe a heart attack. Who knows? Like my, my health was dropping big time (laughs) in just a matter of a year uh, for a job. I held for about three years. And um, uh, but yeah, when I realized I needed to prune that out of my life, everything clicked back into place. I mean, I published a book, a self-published a book, but that's been a bucket item list of mine for years. And I finally did it. I was like, yes. Um, you know, I, I designed a, a framework around creating a life worth living, you know, the, the five F's and getting unstuck RUT. Uh, and then more recently a leadership framework. Uh, so taking the concepts of servant leadership, Redesigning that into four elements that if you stake this out on your leadership tent, uh, trust building, empowering, navigating, and thriving together, if you have that focus in how you lead, regardless of the tactics you use, but if they're grounded in those four things, the ability to pop up your leadership tent and actually take care of people who take care of the job is much easier. And I just developed that framework about a month ago, and I've been teaching it in healthcare organizations, doing a webinar tomorrow about it, and and helping managers and above help their employees be satisfied in life, help create that environment where it is enjoyable to go to work, that I can grow, I am cared for at the workplace. And because I'm also fulfilled there, I can let that carry over into my personal life and be fulfilled at home as well. So...
2: Yeah, no, that's, the, it it really is all connected, right? And, and I think that you're you're hitting on some really important points there, as far as how our work life and our home life, and, you know, leaving things at the door, and, you know, for, for mothers and fathers who are coming home, but what we're, what are we bringing? And, yeah. and how do we translate that into our home lives? It's, it's all related. So. Yeah.
0: Now, there's um, a guy, uh, Johnny Serpilla, he used to run Camping World. Um hmm he had shared with me like wherever you go, there you are. Like, I know he didn't say that phrase, but what he meant was if you're not happy at work, that unhappiness is coming home with you. If you're not unhappy, if you're not happy at home, that unhappiness is coming with you to work. And you think you might compartmentalize, but the reality is it's seeping out. It's in the little things you do with other people. And, it, and he shared with me, it was so important for us as leaders to really know where are we in life you know How am I doing at work? How am I doing at life? Uh, how are they in harmony or not? And if there's something that's out of alignment with who I want to be and the life I want to live, then I need to address that. And I was like, wow. That, and I just interviewed him maybe a year ago uh, and it still sticks with me. And so, yeah, Johnny.
2: That's awesome. I was going to say that one of my favorite things about the podcast world is just being able to gather wisdom, right? From, from other people and other walks. And yeah. um, I was wondering, what are some of your favorite nuggets that have come through your podcast? So that's one yeah, of them. That's one how, of the, how long have you been doing your podcast?
0: Oh, man. Beyond the Rut's been around since August 2015. And okay. I had a previous one with my family for about two years. That started January 2014 ran for 86 episodes before we retired it. And uh, that was called family time Q and a. So if you want to hear, no, don't listen to the ones because <laughs> uh, my sound quality was horrible. We recorded on a phone. Well, and you got to start, you
2: got to start somewhere, right? Yeah. That's how you oh, learn. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, getting back. So on beyond the rut, what have, what have been some of your, your favorite um, little nuggets of wisdom that your, your yeah. guests brought?
0: Oh man. Uh, it's, it's hard to count, but there are a few people yeah. who really stood out to me. Um, one of them is a guy named Eric Giuliani. Uh, he is from the website traveltall.com. His his thing was he had the same job I did uh, as an education consultant when I first met him, uh, when we first met him. And he just he had this kind of question of like, what's beyond Pleasantville? Like he had lived in the same small town. Uh, he was kind of going from town to town for his job, just doing the same sales pitch. But he never really taken a vacation. So he took a month off for a um, leave of absence. His workplace said, yeah, we'll we'll bring you back when you come back. Uh, So he went to Thailand for a month and he's like, wow, there's a whole new world out here. And he just went to one country, comes back and his job says, well, you know, we know we promised you your job back, but we replaced you and good luck to you. And he's like, wow. Um, Well, I don't want to just jump back into the corporate world. There was a whole world out there. I want to see it. And his dream was to travel the whole world photograph it, take video, uh, and not take a single plane. Like travel only by car, bus, bicycle, his own two feet, boats, uh, but no plane rides. And the other thing was he wanted to film it and take photos, but he didn't know how to take photos. <laughs> so I love his story because he he had just an iPhone and he signed up for a class. It was an in-person class. So it was well before COVID. Uh, and he said in that class, there are people in the room with those DSLR cameras with multiple lenses and cases. And he's sitting there at his desk with an iPhone. That's his camera. And the the instructor said that Eric was going to be the guy who's probably going to get the most out of this because he had to learn everything about composition, lighting, and so on. All that to say, when he finished the class, uh, he bought a camera off his instructor and he traveled the world for three years straight off of his savings he bartered with hotels uh like he shot video and photos for them updated their website for the time he was there for two or three days and then he'd move on to the next hotel and he traveled that way from africa to the middle east through russia uh he got to ride the orient express uh, wow. uh, he got into some countries where they were having uh political strife and he was like oh i got to bypass this country for now uh yeah you know, he rode oil tankers across the pacific and the atlantic uh, and he just he lived his life. He did that for three years straight. So Eric Giuliani is one of them. Uh, and he just went for it with what he had in the moment. He went for it. And then whatever he needed, he either learned or he picked up along the way. Amazing. I yeah. Learned. And the other guy that stands out to me, he made it into my book. Actually three times. My editor said I needed to tone it down to one. <laughs> and, uh, this guy is Ron Worley. He uh, is first 22, 24 years of life addicted to drugs, alcohol all kinds of trouble. The police knew him because he was always getting arrested. Uh, And then one day after an accident where he wrecked his friend's truck and then lied about it to the police and to the friend, uh, he realized he needed to make a change. So he established um, core values for himself, like a vision for how he's going to live his life, uh, a vision for his family. He didn't have yet. He lives by a code. He calls the whirly way. He started a bail bonds business that he just recently uh, sold uh, and he just figured, I'm always getting bail bonds. I figured I knew the industry. <laughs> <So, Yeah. laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, I was like, hilarious. So he did that, uh, nutrition supplement stores. Uh, the way he led his staff was the same way he led his family, at, by his code of uh, ethics. And the whole thing was, at, at some point, he's going in to do a, a talk with the local police department. And he was just telling me that that alone blew his mind because – the earlier part of his life, the the police knew him because they were always arresting him. Mm -hmm. Now he's going into their classroom and providing training on how to use the bail bond system or how to track somebody down who skips bond and, and all those kinds of things. And while he's doing that training, he feels lightheaded. He jokes like, Hey, I guess I'm having a heart attack. Boom. He collapses. Uh, Fortunately, the room is filled with first responders. They get him to the hospital. They save his life. And then uh, his doctor, after he is out of the hospital, Is having that recovery talk. Like what is the what is the prognosis? And so Ron is expecting like this workout regimen, a new diet, those kinds of things. But the doctor says to him, You had the widow maker of all heart attacks that most of you don't live at all in that moment, but you did. And he's like, Wow. "Wow. Okay, great. So but the thing is half of the survivors are dead within six months. It's like, oh, that sucks. And he said, half of the other survivors that are still left are dead within the year. By the end of five years, everybody in this pool of survivors is gone. And he's like, wait, are you telling me that I have less than five years to live? And the doctor said, if you're lucky, yes. Uh, most likely you're going to be part of the group that dies within a year. And he's like, no way. And, and so Ron just went home, drafted his bucket list, and he said, if I got five years or less to live, I'm going to knock out everything on his bucket list. And he just said, I'm going to live like I'm dying. And mm-hmm. he's been knocking things off his bucket list. When I met him and interviewed him for beyond the rut, he was in year number six. And when I published beyond the rut, create a life worth living in your faith, family and career, my book, um, he was now on year number eight. And I was like, ah, oh, man, I wonder how Ron's doing. So I pinged him on Facebook, just, I was nervous I wasn't going to get an answer back, but he replied back. He goes, Hey, Jerry, I'm still around. How are you doing? How's the show? I see it's, it's growing. I see you posting all the time. Like, Oh, thank God the guy's still alive. So he's like in year number eight going to year number nine. And he's just like, I'm living the dream. I'm uh, you know, I was a little stressed after we interviewed, but I just took a year off. I sold the Bales bond business, rightfully so we got out of real estate because I was stressful. So we just honed in on this one business. My wife does her thing and uh, we're just, yeah we're enjoying each other for as long as we got and i'm like man so that guy uh because of this one thing of living like you're dying and not wasting any of this this time that we've got uh so i'll, I'll probably stop there cuz i can just talk on and on about 300 plus guests and you're probably amazing yeah
2: no i mean and that's that is the beautiful thing about these conversations is there is so much wisdom out there to share
0: um yeah.
2: and that's i love what i love about the podcast community um but I think, you know, one thing that comes through in, in your writing and, and what the stories you're telling um, is just the importance of relationships. And, you know, you've been married over 20 years and, and you've got this beautiful relationship with your wife. What's, what is, um, what's something that you really identified as being key to having that success in those long-term relationships?
0: Oh man. Um, especially as a man, uh, mm-hmm. you know. I remember being raised, you got to be strong. You got to be tough. I mean, those words never really came from my dad, but mm-hmm. you look at the men around me and any, any other kid who's growing up, it's that idea of being tough and strong and not looking weak. But if you want a long-term relationship, you got to have the strength to admit that you're wrong and you got to have the strength to be open to the possibility I don't have all the information uh, and open to the possibility that my reaction probably was not the best what we wanted to accomplish as a family. And every time I got faced with one of those humbling moments, uh I remember uh, it it'd be so much easier to just lash out and say, "Well, I'm the the leader of the family or I'm the breadwinner or I'm I want my needs respected." And uh but a- instead having the humility to, to listen to my family and realize, "Holy moly, I was 100% wrong in the situation." <laughs> uh, now what do I do? Well, I mean, The information's out there. They already know I messed up and why. What they're watching for is, do I have the strength to admit that I was wrong and Mm -hmm. make it right? And I think that's something that a lot of men get wrong is that they feel like they got to put on a face in front of the people who know them better than themselves. And I I think for men, if we recognize and have the strength and the courage to actually be open to the possibility that we're wrong and we don't have it all together, it's going to go a long way. Yeah.
2: Yeah. There's a lot of trust built in that space. I totally agree with you. Yeah. 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 Um, so the other question that I ask every single person that's come on my podcast is, um, you know, I, I know we learn so much through, you know, hindsight. And um, so the question I love to ask is what is a piece of advice that you would give to your younger self?
0: Oh man. Um, that Dr. Richmond was right. <laughs> but if you followed his, ev- his advice, you still would not have met Olivia. Uh, so, my faculty advisor when I was in college recognized I was not passing my classes as a pre med student, um, but somehow was helping people pass the same classes I was failing. So, he recognized then that um, my gifting was in teaching people, not wanting to be. I did not want to be a doctor, and he saw it then. Uh, so, I guess the advice. To myself would be listen to other people sooner <laughs> that might be it uh because there are times my wife would put out an idea and i'm like ah no what do you know and then turn sure enough, two years later it's like ah dang it okay hopefully olivia does not realize she gave me this advice two years ago and it's like hey, and it turns out no, she remembered yeah <laughs> yeah So, yeah. That, yeah
2: i rarely forget <laughs> yes oh man
0: and, and so i think that would be the advice to younger self is um when you get good advice, be open to listening to that and recognizing what you need to hear versus what you wanted to hear. And, yeah, definitely in the first half of my life, I would listen to a lot of what I wanted to hear as opposed to what I needed to hear.
2: Yeah, that's yeah. powerful, especially when you get that trusted network around you. And as you yeah. as we become fuller versions of ourselves, we get surrounded by a community that actually knows quite a bit. Yeah. And it is important to listen sometimes. Oh, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) for sure. Um, Well, I want people to know, uh, be able to know where to find you and how to connect and find your book. So where can where can they do that?
0: All right. So the book Beyond the Rut is on Amazon.com. I still haven't figured out how to get it on all the other spots. So I'm still working on that. When I get a chance, it'll be there. Uh, The website is beyondtherut.com. That's where you'll find uh, blog posts, my podcast episodes, uh, links to me if you want me to speak at an organization of yours. And then if you are looking for leadership development, uh, btrimpact.com is the site to go for that.
2: Awesome. Good stuff. I know there's so many people out there that could use this amazing advice and be on the rut, just really resonated with me. So, thank you so much for um, having this conversation with me today. And um, I hope everyone enjoys it. Um, Thank you so much. I'm Wendy Jones here with What I Meant to Say with Jerry Dugan. And we're here to remind you to be real, be you, and be better. Thank you for joining us on What I Meant to Say, another production of Inspired Edutainment brought to you by Be Better Media.